Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Joel Gardner is an accomplished filmmaker, photographer, and writer. His documentary, Sunlight Man, tells the story of his late father, the novelist John Gardner, and their complex relationship. Joel has collaborated as a photographer with his father, with the late Raymond Carver, and with others. He's currently working on a documentary about small farms in his home state of Vermont. Well, Joel, it's great to welcome you to The Story Talks Back. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. Really My pleasure, it. Dave. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I always start out by asking my guests uh, what roles stories played in their growing up, you know, in their formation. And I know your dad was obviously a, a well-known storyteller, um, but other people in your family or, or what was sort of the larger, the larger role that stories played in your family? Yeah, I, I love that question. I think it's interesting because really more than anything, I think that that stories are the glue that holds families together. And at some point maybe is the necessary crowbar to crack them apart when they need that. Um, <laughs> my mother was a very, very prolific storyteller, very engaging. And in many ways, I think, able to adjust on the fly and to engage an audience in a way that my ne my father never could. Um, writing involves a lot of revision. Mm -hmm. That ability to engage with an audience in front of you is pretty specialized. And she was amazing at it, still is at 87 years old. And, uh, and my grandfather, uh, my father's father is the other one I think of because he was a, a lay minister. And so he would prepare these very involved sermons and commit them to memory. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, I keep coming back to my mother though, because uh, she could make a story out of anything. And that was, uh, there's one that I use in my film where she's talking about um, how when people ask her what she does, cause you know, she was uh, a wife and a mother and uh, you know, had a, just about finished her PhD in musical composition and uh, was an elementary music teacher. Um, but she would, her answer was, I grow bonsai. So for a period of time, she told stories about bonsai. Interesting. What about stories about you? I mean, were you the subject of stories or did you tell stories as a child or as you were growing up? Well, we did have a lot of, um, you know, my parents read to us pretty much every night when we were very young and we got to reading pretty early ourselves independently. So that was always in the air. Um, 
Yeah, the stories that were told about me were, were I would say, 80% affectionate and uh, 20% kind of ribbing. Uh, most of them featured he's, well, because he's blind as a bat, you know, and then there would be some other thing that came from that. I, uh, I remember also times that my dad would have just finished a story and it might be 2 a.m. and we would be playing Monopoly. It was a weekend or something. And I was a young kid, maybe eight, nine, 10, 11. And he would come down and he would insist on reading this story to us. It might not be something we understood, hmm. but it was quite wonderful. And then, you know, we would resume our Monopoly game. Various relatives on my mother's side were pretty interesting storytellers as well, but they were telling stories at an adult level that really didn't engage us. And we kind of like stopped by and listen in a little bit here and there. And uh, I was just very much a part of it. I mean, people had more time for that, I think, or we made more time for mm. it. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, what we do now is so fractured, it seems to me. There was two and a half channels of television. And so, you know, you watch a couple shows a week. You didn't really spend the kind of time we do with screens now. Yeah. And at some point, you became a visual storyteller. So you got into cameras. You, I think initially you were into still pictures. How did, how did that evolve? Sure, yeah. So um, it was sort of simultaneous actually. Uh, we had a Super 8 camera and I, I think my first sort of great work lost to the ages, alas, uh, was called Cars and it was a still frame still frame animation of uh, moving matchbox cars around these puddles and a um, giant cataclysmic car crash at the end. Took all day to film, got very sunburned. Um, not sure how effective it was in terms of storytelling, but it was a lot of fun to do. And I got into still photography just because I loved what a camera could do. And I remember the very first impulse I had to make a photograph or at least one of the earliest was there was this beautiful rainbow and I grabbed my mom's you know 126 instamatic camera and went and snapped a picture of it um you know out over the cornfield outside our house in Bosquito and of course when it came back it didn't really look much like a rainbow you know filtered through a picture window and a plastic lens onto a tiny piece of film um, but I was pretty hooked and I think I got my first camera really right around, uh, when I was in seventh grade. So I don't know, was that 13 or something like that? Maybe 12. I don't know. And I, and it was a Polaroid. So this was going to be great because I could just snap pictures. And the problem became that the pictures were a dollar a shot. And that's $1970. You could buy a car for $5, right? It's a long time ago. <laughs> but the quick answer my mother came up with was, hey, well, let's just go get you a 35 millimeter camera. We went to the local camera store, bought a camera, a couple rolls of film. And we happened to have this art teacher who taught me how to work with me on taking pictures and also on developing them. So that was really fun. And that was also because I was blind as a bat and my mom's thought was, well, you can't see what things look like. You can take a picture, you can blow it up and then you'll see what they look like. And, and I love that. I love the darkroom part of it as well. So 
that was a time when you still had the influence of the picture magazines, very less, less so maybe than now, but, um, you know, photo essays and storytelling with still images was a thing. Mm. We still do it now. Um, but I always felt, I think, even as I was getting really good in photography and kind of making it a career, still photography, architecture, that kind of thing, that it didn't mean much. And you can say all day long that a picture is worth a thousand words, but they're mostly just descriptive words and they don't give you anything. An early experimenter who I met and actually showed some photographs of fun, interesting guy, Wright Morris, um, did a number of picture books in the early 70s that were a combination of beautiful photographs shot with his five by seven view camera. And then like on the opposite page, you'd have the photograph on the opposite page would be a block of text set off like a photograph with big wide margins. And it was kind of an experiment that he did. A he did a few of them, two or three. Um, God's country and my people is one. Um, photographs of the farm in Iowa where he spent time as a kid and he went back with his camera. But it never really quite satisfied me. And so when it got around to my wanting to do the story on my dad to, do, to make Sunlight Man, I was very fortunate because somehow weirdly, just as I was really kind of finished with writing all these treatments on a typewriter and everything, you could buy a Mac, you could buy this program called Final Cut Pro and you could get a camera for a couple thousand dollars all in and just start filming, just start recording people. The quality of the image was standard definition, but it was very good color. And the audio was really good. And so I just started. Um, but it was a long time kind of waiting for things to come together. And I figured I'd have to learn how to do 16 millimeter. And it's so time consuming and expensive to, to shoot on actual film. Mm. Although people still do do it for a variety of reasons. And not all of them aesthetic. Um, I think Richard Linkletter's film boyhood he made the deliberate choice to shoot on film because he was going to tell the story over a period of about a dozen years or so mm. and he knew that digital technology would advance and change so rapidly that he couldn't cut the film together and have this consistent look uh, with with digital so he made the choice well i guess that's a aesthetic reason but he made the choice because he wanted you to not think about the way that it was filmed just to see it mm. So when you started taking still pictures, did you think of them as storytelling or does that sort of idea ever enter your mind as you're taking pictures or planning them? Well, yes and no. I mean, one of the first things that you get kind of seduced by with particularly black and white photography is this fascination, um, and I think it's Gary Winogrand, I may be mistaken, might be Lee Friedlander actually, who is a 35 millimeter kind of black and white Leica photographer, uh, may still be around. He said, I take photos to see what things look like photographed. And there is this kind of like compelling, like you, you out there, you're exploring, you're making discoveries, and then you can't wait to sort of work with the negatives and make the prints and see all that rich detail and the contrast and the tones and play with it. That, that's there. 
But I think there's this other track separate from storytelling, and I'm gonna get to that, uh, which is like Alfred Stieglitz and this idea of equivalence. And he came up with this, he was way, way, way back with the Armory show and all of that. And he had, he would take photographs of, for example, clouds over Lake George. And they would just, he wouldn't tell you what the emotion was, but the idea was that maybe if you saw the same thing that he saw, that he was looking at when he had this feeling, in some way that you couldn't quite define that feeling would come to you as well. And I love that idea, this idea of equivalence. Um, so it does have to do with the type of storytelling in that you're out there trying to find a way to capture not just what you see, but what you feel so that what you're looking for is really directed more by, does it represent what I feel? Will it convey what I feel? Mm. Um, not in, this, in an entirely self-expressive way. Self-expressive to me means I have something to tell you. Right. What you want is connection. And that's what I think photography is pretty marvelous about. Um, and it goes to, you know, the, the worst of genre painting, you know, red barn in a field kind of, you know, run down and all of that stuff, fine. Um, but the but the basic in, instinct of, of equivalence is kind of universal in visual language. With the storytelling piece, that's where like coming up with a story that you want to tell, um, whether it's Gordon Parks, um, he did a really beautiful series, a lot of photo essays for Life magazine, or Gene Smith, who did that a bit earlier, I think. Those are things where you think about what are the pieces I need to tell the story, and you go through and you document them. Um, someone else who does this effectively is Nicholas Nixon, who did it with like an 8 by 10 view camera. Um, you know, you have Walker Evans, people like that. Now, all of these were pictures that I was looking at and influenced by. So yeah, you, you tend to think about like, hey, what is my story? Do I have a story to tell? And for a lot of times, um, for me, it became less about the story and more about what is sort of a unifying theme I can explore. And that was also because I did find it limiting. With film, with video, you have this enormous sort of power, emotional connection possible through actual language and through sound. And with those things there, it's just so much richer. So I didn't prefer the mode of storytelling that still photography offered me once I'd had, you know, this other drug in my system. But I, you know, every now and then I, I kind of bounce back to it like, if, if I had, and I don't mean all the money in the world, but you know, oh, I don't know, a spare bunch of money fell on my head and I did need to work for a year. It would be cool to like live in Venice, take pictures on black and white film for a year, get lost about every day, um, kind of find a couple of restaurants that you went into that were affordable and just like, you know, live there and then, and then come away with that and then spend next five years sifting through it to find out what it was, right? It wouldn't be purposely going out and telling the story of Venice, but something like so foreign to the way that we live and kind of try to embed yourself there. Uh, I had a similar idea about with this COVID stuff. Um, I planned this past summer, I took three weeks off of work and I was gonna take a motorcycle trip that would have taken me up the coast of Maine very slowly and over to Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, 
maybe Prince Edward Island on the way over to the Gaspé Peninsula. And then we're kind of rounding our way down to Quebec City, Montreal, maybe the Adirondacks and kind of home. But I couldn't go to Canada. So I ended up spending three weeks just riding my motorcycle in a kind of a micro but very deep tour of Vermont which has 8,640 miles of gravel roads, thank you very much. Those are just the state-maintained ones. And, you know, it's, it's a town, it's the, there's something like 237, something like that, towns in the state. And those towns could be like four houses and, and uh, you know, an old store. Um, but they're still kind of there. It's a little bit like, uh, more like Appalachia than like, the Vermont Life magazine, White Steeples and Norman mm-hmm. Rockwell stuff that we all think. It's it's pretty pretty gritty. And I thought that could be an interesting story to do, just in still images, you know, to to put together. And then what do you do with it? I don't know. Big picture, print them, put them in books. <laughs> Hard to say. It's the discovery that's the attraction too. Yeah. And uh so at what point did you make the decision or did you feel the urge to work on The Sun Lightning, this documentary about your dad that, that you've been doing? Uh, what, do you remember the moment or the day that you thought that was something you should do or wanted to do? You know, that's such a great question. And it's such a painful one for me to have to talk about mm-hmm. because um, the truth of the matter is, is that it was a really dumb idea. Hold on. In, in, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day, like, okay, so dumb in this sense. Um, I didn't know anything about filmmaking. I really did honestly think of doing this very shortly after my father died, I felt like, you know what? I mean, within a month of his death, a friend of mine, David Huntley, who's gone on to do all kinds of wonderful things in film and television, said to me, hey, you know, um, you should do a documentary about your father. And like to this day, I'm like, you bastard. (laughs) Because it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh And of course, this is you know, when if you were shooting video, you were shooting video with a you know a camera, which was the head and the lens, and you had this giant pack that you carried around, and you were recording something like 256 lines of of, of resolution vertically um, in black and white. You didn't have sync sound; you had to figure that out. 16 millimeter people have been doing that for years and years, but my God. Um, so I started writing treatments and ideas and all that. Meanwhile, life is going on. I'm broke. I'm going to be an artist when I grow up and all of that is still true. But I was going to this, um, you know, through this process of like, what would the film look like? How would I do it? Who would I talk to? What would I, what kind of a film would it be? And I just, I really got sucked into it. Now, the reason I say it was a stupid idea is that a much simpler uh, offer was quite literally put on the linen tablecloth table at a restaurant in New York by my dad's wonderful and lovely agents, the Borchardts, who said, and this is right after Home Before Dark came out, Susan Cheever's right. uh, uh, book, and it, it did gangbusters, and George and Ann thought, well, hey, Joel, would you like to write a, you know, a little story about your dad? And 
I was just too pure for that. I couldn't, I couldn't be bothered, but it would have been a good idea. And it might've been- What do you mean too pure? Well, I think maybe part of it too is just, um, you know, when you grow up with a writer in the house, there can only be one writer in the house. It's Mm. pretty rare that you find that not to be the case. Or if they are, they're in very different areas. They do, one's a mystery writer, the other one's doing histories of the presidents, who knows. A couple of novelists every now and then manage to work it out without killing each other. But I, I think I thought of, of writing books as really my dad's territory. And uh, he was dead, but I wasn't sure, you know, that he would come <laughs> back and have, have some notes, have some revisions he wanted to get into that. So I, I kind of like left that and walked away from it. But, you know, um, it's too bad in some ways because... Uh, it could have been really bad and by now I'd be past it. Um, but it could have been also good because a lot of the things that I personally remember and stories that I wish I could have included in the film just can't make it because when you get right down to it in a film, you might be talking 3,500 words. There's not much you can get into an hour and a half. Mm. It's remarkable. And that was a that was a hard truth that you know years later when I finally got started on it not until like two early 2000s I realized that that maybe not the right form although mm. I just love pictures and I love that archival material and mm-hmm. and in the end I mean maybe didn't make the film I intended started out thinking I was going to make but I, I, I'm really glad I did so yeah you know it's a stupid idea I own it uh, but on the other hand, people like Julie Taymor and Elliot Goldenthal and Michael Pollan and and a whole bunch of people, uh, including you, I think, um, like the film. So, you know. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's gonna... It's it's interesting because the film that I, the the cut that I saw starts with you getting ready to take a motorcycle ride. Yeah. Which of course is something that's very identified with your dad. Um, at least in the minds of those who know about him. Sure. Um, so it sort of raised the question for me of how much are you the intended protagonist of the film? Because in, in some ways it is your dad's story, um, you know, and it goes through his history and his beliefs and all that. But it also has parts about you that are about how you reacted to the situation. So how did you see yourself and your dad fitting in together in the film? Yeah, so so probably the most honest answer I can give you is that, again, that sort of concept of equivalence, but also this idea of, you know, there were things I couldn't photograph, right? I don't have I don't have any video, any footage of my dad actually riding a motorcycle. I have some pictures from like Fred Lowe where he's goofing around. I've got a couple of him posed with his bike and this and that, but I didn't have anything that could bring you into the film in a kinetic way that, um, that kind of suggested that passion of his, which was also a bit of a put on. And I, and I mean that kindly, it was really, um, you know, his, his pushback against the kind of intellectualization of what he did, um, some part of his kind of boyhood uh, 
risk-taking, adventurous part that just never really got resolved. I kind of didn't want to become so much in the center of the film. And I was really wary because a, a, a pretty darn good film, in fact, I think it won an Academy Award for documentary, um, My Architect, uh, features the filmmaker very much at the center of the film. And there were some, there's some risks to that. I won't go into what I feel about that film so much, except to say that it was a bit of a cautionary tale for me. Mm. And so to the extent that I stay in the film or that I come up at various points in the film, part of it is um, essentially to say, yes, I kind of own this story. I have to admit that I don't see this objectively. And the viewer should be aware that, you know, I can sit behind the camera, I can, inter I can interview you, for example, and I can cut all of my questions out and to the point where my presence is not evident, but it's obviously there because of the questions I ask. And so you have to kind of step into the frame a little bit, I think, to say that you're not pretending at objectivity. And it also became a more and more personal quest as I made discoveries that were really startling to me. And among them was that my dad wasn't famous anymore. Mm. It's got a shelf life. And, you know, the people who knew him and who understood and remembered those times, they're all, they're dead. There's, there's some who, you know, were admirers of his, who read some of his books, but um, he's just another writer on a shelf. And that came, you know, really full circle when I, had a lovely evening and was able to interview Bill Gass in St. Louis. And, you know, he, he, I don't think I was quite as arrogant as to say that I was partly doing the film because maybe people would go out and buy his books again because I think he's an important voice. And he said, well, all the people who are going to read those books already read them. And they have them on their shelf already. And I was like, yeah, you're kind of probably right. There are some <laughs> stories that kind of pop, pop up again. I know Narrative Magazine is going to be uh, print uh, reissuing, uh, putting on their site the uh, uh, redemption, which is okay. nice. Um, it's a good story for people who don't know his work to see. But I, I kind of, pro if to the extent I'm anything like a protagonist in the film, it's kind of out of cheapness and necessity. Uh, mm. Wasn't anybody else I could get to do it. Um, I had a very weird night back in. Berkeley, California, when I was living there. And I finally, finally, finally got a hold of, and you may have given it to me. I think you did. A VHS bootleg, effectively, of the um, Richard O'Moore's documentary on dad that he did with mm -hmm. when he was with the KQED team. They did all those ones on writers, some wonderful things. And it was like VHS tape and it would like, the sound was okay, but the picture would kind of come up and go down and had that like, um, I forget the particular like anti-theft stuff they did. Right. Um, but it, you know, that clearly hadn't been defeated. So here was this like weird sort of ghostly image coming up and going away. And I went to bed that night after watching that, it was about one in the morning when I got done. And I went to bed and I woke up at around 4.30 in the morning and I said, well, it's obvious what I have to do. I just have to interview my father. <laughs> because even though it was this terrible VHS copy of a copy of this documentary, his hearing his voice and like maybe at a particular late night susceptible uh, in the mood I was in, 
it just seemed to me like, well, he's still alive. It's just a, this is just, it's just a technical problem to solve. How do you do this? And it took me a good five or 10 minutes, even after I woke up to think, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, I wonder what you sort of discovered about yourself or your own story in making the film. Was there any revelations about your role or, um, you know, how you felt about things now that you could share? Well, you know, the, the, the good news at the end of the trail is I interviewed a lot of people. I spent a lot of years making it, a lot of times putting it down for quite a while at a time and then coming back to it. Um, and I did discover in the end that, you know, essentially my dad was the man I knew. I mean, um, he was sometimes, you know, a little more awful than I ever, ever saw him, although I saw some awful. And he was obviously also conversely much more generous and virtuous than sometimes I saw on that side of things. He was a really committed artist. I think his um, his engagement and, and attachment to suffering in a kind of a Buddhist piece of language there uh, was something he paid for. I really, if anything, learned, like, if I'm going to differentiate myself from his path, that's a piece I need to pay attention to because it really... Mm. There's a lot of guilt. There was a lot of, um, he's very ambitious. Uh, he did hurt a lot of people. He hurt himself maybe more than anyone else. I, I mean, I say that, I, I jury's out on that one. Um, haven't heard all the stories, but it was more than anything, a comfort to me to, to discover that in the process of making a film about someone that I thought I was authority enough to make a film about, uh, discovered some new things, but a fun functionally at the end of it came to a deeper understanding of who he was, how he got there, um, why he did what he did, said what he said, wrote what he wrote. Um, certainly there were times where he was, he had some blind spots. Um, I will say that I happened to be with him in New York City and I, God knows how, I don't know why, um, but we were, in one place, like in a bar or something like that, it was daytime. And then we walked through like to another room and now we were in a restaurant and there he was meeting the editor from Basic Books who was going to publish on moral fiction. And I just remember feeling sick. It's like, this is such a bad idea. And part of what I felt was just the simple problem that, and those times Reagan era, right? Falwell had the moral majority. You know, you, you're you're just stepping in it. You know, this, this is this is like this. Is, you you got your foot in a bear trap as soon as you say moral fiction, because it's equated with this other stuff that has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Um, I don't know that we had that conversation, but I think I did with him. Don't you see that this isn't gonna go well? And then on top of that, there was the whole thing of you know you know, 
attacking, I think, with um, the best of intentions, people by name, you know, sentences by paragraph, characters, you know, whatever. And that did end up being something very costly. Now, whether, you know, it ultimately matters what people think of you is obviously a job for future generations, but he certainly pissed off everybody that, and as Bill Gass said in the interview, it's like, it was even worse than he pissed off people that he talked about in the book. You know, he disparaged the, you know, Dr. O and a lot of, you know, really popular and, and, and good writers, you know, never mind um, uh, Catch-22 and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the stuff that he didn't care for. He pissed off people by not putting him in the book. I mean, people would go around and say, well, he didn't, he didn't say anything about me. And they're mad about that. So that's Bill Gass shared that with me. And I've I, never heard that. Okay, that, that's, that's too perfect. That is funny. Yeah. yeah. But when you say he was attached to suffering, I mean, do you mean that in terms of sort of self-destructive behavior? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, yeah, I, you know, we, we, we have so much more language for some of this stuff now, like, um, you know, even teenagers understand the, you know, that kind of idea of, of, I'm saying my dad didn't, but, um, you know, consequences and impulse control and things of that nature are sort of in the cultural mix now. We all kind of get that. Um, making good decisions, right? That's just like, um, it's not It's not like making one good decision. It's like continuously every decision you make, looking at what it's gonna, what it's gonna do and what's so clearly remarkable. And of course he knew this about himself. He just, for whatever reason, couldn't or wouldn't change it. He had this night, I didn't make it into the film, I don't think, but it's about a dinner party at Bennington College where all these writers are and he goes around the room and it's in the period when he's doing on moral fiction and he tells everybody in the room what's wrong with their work you know down to like the, the beginning of chapter six and this kind of thing and he finally gets around to Bernard Malamud and everybody at this point Nick Del Banco told me this story as well is just oh what the hell is oh god this is gonna go really badly and he bows down and says you know um you know just worships him, says, you are, you are my teacher, now teach me. And uh, and then Alan Chu's wife at that dinner party just was so appalled. And she said, I love you. I think you're one of the greatest writers in America today, but you're an, a despicable human being. <laughs> and he said, Marjorie, 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 I can revise my fiction. I can't revise my life. But again, you know, we don't think that way anymore. Mm. And in some sense, you know, I don't know what what um, success does to people. It's never been my problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 hard to say what he was looking for, but he was definitely looking uh, for more than most of us do, and I think therefore willing to upend marriages, to take financial risks, to take physical risks. Um, bad behavior on horseback and thunderstorms and motorcycles and driving a car like it really mattered uh, to pass some old farmer on a blind curve at going 45 miles an hour when, you know, you might all die. Um, so he wasn't, I guess it would be an understatement to say he wasn't careful. 
<laughs> but but that was that was the cause of a lot of of just kind of continuing to to sort of feed his suffering. And some of it was, you know, just emotional trajectories that he launched himself on, I think, to explore them. Um, as a writer, I felt like, you know, some, mom said this, my mother, that he sometimes would just do things so that he could write about them, you know, create situations. Mm -hmm. Coming from her point of view, so I don't know, but, but that seems possible to me. So attached to suffering as a medium through which uh, experience needed to be filtered, I don't know. And yet it's funny, he would write novels that really, like um, October Light is just a, an incredible celebration. Nickel Mountain is too. It, it's a very strangely dark book, the way that it opens and for much of it, but boy, does it, it's a beautiful shining book on this human enterprise. So you mentioned on moral fiction, um, you know, your dad put forward in that book, the idea that stories, you know, inspire people's lives and that they have a responsibility to somehow be uplifting or set good examples, um, which I think is kind of like the core argument that annoys a lot of people. Um, how do you feel that that has played out in terms of your perception of your story or your dad's story? Um, do you think that that in any way has been borne out by what you've seen in life? Uh, you know, sort of, yeah, that, that, that's, that's kind of a rich area. I, I would say two things. First of all, um, yes, it's true that my dad argued for stories that are uplifting or redemptive. I don't think that's so unusual. I think that um, what's unusual is when we have a, a spate of time where there's just none of them around. When... Um, you think about it, though, he's not really talking about bending reality to shape a story in that way. In fact, I, my interpretation of on moral fiction as a fundamental principle is commit as a writer to following the causal trajectory of a character's actions you know, based on their understanding of where they are in the world. The decisions they make are going to have a certain result and consequences. And when you trace that character in a situation problem through an, a natural and realistic causality, even if you're writing fabulous fiction, you don't get rid of gravity, right? You, you, you will end at a place where we can learn from another character's journey, another character's decisions in a way that's comparable to something we might be experiencing that we might have to make decisions about it. Therefore you carry a bit more of a sense of at least openness to the idea that you have other options available to you. Maybe this isn't the best one. So that's one piece of it. 
But the other is that kind of thing he's pushing off to the side, which is the idea that Bill Gass promotes, which is just, I write a book, it's I'm putting another beautiful object into the universe. You know, it's like my kid turns into a violin player. Wonderful. I don't think that he's pushing the idea of false narratives so much as true narratives. And that's where the, the moral piece applies. But in order for you to end up with redemptive, positive stories, you have to live into some kind in some kind of a society or some kind of time where those things are believable. And at least in one interview that he did, and I think this is on the, the Brockport University, or SUNY Brockport, I don't know if it's still called that. They, they had, used to have this show and he was on there. And he says, well, yeah, if the world is all you know, terrible, um, sure. Yeah, you, you, you can say so. You, you kind of have to say so. But if it isn't, that's an attitude. That, that's, that's not particularly helpful. So, you know, for me, I would say that, you know, and I, and I love this, like this, um, when I first moved to San Francisco, I, I had this, like, uh, I got all my, like, I got my midlife crisis over my 20s and, you know, went off to San Francisco and I lived in a house full of Irish women. It was like just an apartment, it was just a room I could rent. And there was one there, her name was Anne-Marie Campbell and she was from Belfast and she was the you know, charming young woman. And she, she, she said, you know, live in hope, die in despair. And I always thought that was so great and the way she would say it. And then one day I was like saying to Sarah, I was like, die in despair, but the die in despair part. And, you know, maybe that's Irish, I don't know. But, but the, the live in hope part, that's pretty essential. I think right now in this whole COVID period that we're in, having emerged from the, the swath of destruction of the last four years, if I may say so, of Trump's presidency, you know, we sure need better stories than what we've been getting. And we've had some that have come along. And to the extent that those are the stories that we choose to engage with, we're probably better off. I think we're probably able to make better decisions. So if there's been a dark time, darker than any time since Reagan, you know, we just went through it. And maybe, maybe now, um, we'll have a turn uh, to the light again, but it's the eternal problem of the storyteller, right? If, if, if your stories don't help, why are you telling them and why is anybody listening? Good question. So, I mean, the, the, the making of this film and how it's sort of been woven through your life for a number of years uh, must be a story in itself. I mean, how do you feel about whether the film, uh, where the film is now and how its evolution has influenced you? Do you feel like it's taken you to a good place or um, tell me about how, that, how you've experienced the whole arc of, of making this film? Yeah, so I I would say that for me, 
it was really, it began as a pretty audacious project. I mean, as I said, it, you know, it's kind of stupid. I could have just written a book. I mean, it would have been involved typing paper and some typing ribbon and maybe one of those pencils that you erase and a little brush and stuff. And it would have been a lot cheaper. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't just the making of the film. I think any time that we engage in something that's really creative, it's the making of ourselves. And we have to think of it as the project of discovering what you care about and paying attention to that and, and nurturing that. And in some, in, in some sense, honoring that in others and helping to awaken in them the inspiration that you have found. I, in one sense, the film doesn't quite do what I hoped it would do, which was bring that message that, you know, if you want to do something, you really should just do it. Um, sounds like a Nike shirt, but <laughs> it's very, it's very difficult, perhaps, this is a better way to put it. It's very difficult to have an objective sense of where, where I went, why I did it, where I am now with it, where the film may go or may not go from here in a culture that is so obsessed with results and so dismissive of process and craft. We're famous for the junk we produce and sell around the world, whether it's TV shows or, or, or stoves that don't have thermostats that work. We just, we're, we're very um, obsessed with that bottom line. And the, the kind of fascinating thing to me that came up as I was making the film was I got to a point where I was creatively stuck. I didn't know where to go with it. I wasn't gonna toss it, but I was, it was clear to me that I couldn't push any, any direction and, 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 and come up with meaningful and creative result. And so I simply started making another film. I just took about five years in the middle of making this one and spent a great deal of time with this little piano camp in Bennington, Vermont, trying to make a film about them. It unraveled for reasons that were entirely um, predictable and, and kind of funny in retrospect. Um, but it also proved to me that it's this immersion into understanding and there's something to do with you know f-stops and shutter speeds and audio recording levels that allows you to distract the brain and the eye and the ear enough that you're put in the way of magic and and that's sort of the same approach i feel i have the for good fortune now to take towards writing because you know I believe I have confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that my father is in fact dead and he's not reading anything that I'm doing or, 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 or screening any of my films. So that same playfulness can, can come into, into a world that was all his before, all his domain and, and now can be mine. I also found that I just get permission to, to love things that don't necessarily turn into you know, the wonder of the world. The world doesn't have to love these things the way I do. And I'm at peace with that. And in fact, I'm grateful for that. Mm. I don't know if I expressed that well, but it's, it's a sense of, of calm and a sense of confidence and also a sense of joy and curiosity that just feel a part of my makeup now. 
I'm not afraid to do anything if it's something I'm interested in doing. Mm. And I might find out I don't like it and I'm not going to continue with it. But most of the time, the investigation is, is really enriching. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like doing the movie served its purpose for you, you know? Yeah, it, it, it definitely was something I had to go through and not around at a certain point. And yeah, and it certainly introduced me to so many wonderful people that I knew about and so many wonderful people I did not know about. Um, so I'm grateful for that part of the experience. Where do you see, you talked about writing um, I know you also have other films in mind. I mean, where do you think your your next stories are going to be? You know, do you have more interest in writing now, or uh, do you think filmmaking is still something that's top priority for you? So yeah, filmmaking is really, really time consuming, expensive, uh, exciting, ridiculous. Um, it's, it's probably something that I should have done in the 1970s because that's where my aesthetic lives in a funny way. Um, somebody like Les Blank, who just had a 16 millimeter, you know, sync sound camera on his shoulder and, uh, you know, walked around New Orleans during Mardi Gras and, and, you know, and, and filmed, how do you make a good crab oil? Um, you know, tell me about your costume that, uh, or spent time with, you know, a musician like Lightning Hopkins and sort of just put him in the context of, of, of where it all happened. So I'll continue to do that. I mean, part of it is it gets me outside. You know, we all need the vitamin D. Um, that's important. And I do love, I love, love, love shaping this story. I love, I love what, what light does, you know, in lenses and, you know, now on sensors more than on, on film stock. So I'll always be doing something like that. I have my hands in something like that. Um, one of the films that I'm doing right now is about an absolutely marvelous painter. And I sound a little like my dad when I say that, because he's always praising people that he met for being so extraordinary. And, but this individual is, his name is Alistair Dacey, and he is just a phenomenal artist and his work is in the lineage of a group called the Boston 10 painters. And he literally studied with a guy who studied with a guy who studied with a guy going back to this group formed in the 18, late 1800s um, who is John Singer Sargent, that kind of work, you know, very, very um, just beautiful, um, but, but serious technique. And I spend time with him in his studio. I shoot for three and a half hours of him photograph, you know, painting someone. I'm photographing him painting some, someone and catching little bits of conversation and noticing how he engages. And just the pure act of mixing paint is just mind blowing. Um, sounds simple, but it's really interesting. And, and you know, I don't know where it's going to go. I have, uh, we've got a couple more chapters to do. But that's part of it, right? Get on a boat with a camera, go out to this island, photograph him making drawings of these specimens of this marine lab. And what is he going to do with those? He's a portrait painter. Why is he doing this? Those are all, that's just compelling stuff. 
the the one I want to do on young farmers in Vermont has more to do with this kind of idea of back to the land and spirituality in 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 the question of um, committing a life to a place, which to me is impossible. Um, I mean that in the sense that I live in my mind. I don't live, you know, with knowledge of soil science, things of that nature. But to see someone who does and who commits to, you know, like I can't wait to see what I do in this place in 50 years. You know, they they live like that. They talk like that. Uh, I love seeing that. And having some farm background, you know, my grandfather's dairy farm and all of that to draw on that, like the hard work, the the the, the consequences of weather and finances and all of that. People are doing it again, and and it's an awakening, I think. So I want to be at least on the edges of that. But the writing, that's probably the center of it right now for me. And, and um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have, like, get some recognition for a couple of stories. Um, but it's not going to be a living. Mm. doesn't look like um, I'm working on this novel that is really fun, and uh, and it's going to be... If, if I'm successful, it's going to be this kind of wonderful piece that takes a period of people's lives in, the, in their 20s and then joins up again for the second half of the book with these people when they're in their 50s and early 60s. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. If there's sort of one lesson that you took away or would take away on a daily basis from your dad, do you have a sense of what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think of the things that that I learned from my father as a writer, but more generally as an artist with real concern about the quality of the work he did is to always be working you you can't wait for the inspiration you have to you have to be working because that's where it happens and and some of it is work it's just awful and you hate to do it and i had the same experience with the film too you know it's just like well you shot all this stuff you damn well look at it you know you you're going to have to edit it so you have to know where the good parts are and you have to put up with hating the sound of your own voice um, because you have to get to, to, to what matters. The, the persistence and I think the humility of just going back every day to look at your awful, awful work and to make it just that ever so slightly bit better is, is ultimately a joy. I mean, it's not too different from, I, I remember Sailor telling me about this, the guy who used to, he had a captain's license and he would do sailboat deliveries for rich people. You know, it's like, oh, next season we want to sail in Fiji. Can you get my boat there? Sure. So the captain hires the crew. The captain goes on this horrible, shitty, bad weather boat ride to deliver the boat to this island someplace because the owner knows when the good season for sailing is, so you can't take it then. So ends up in a bar. Oh my God, I'm never doing that again. Jesus Christ, that was the most horrible. We almost died, you know, ran out of food. The radar went down, whatever. Um, I, you know, how did I ever get into the sailing racket? And by their third beer, they've already accepted their next delivery. They <laughs> met some guy in the bar. 
they're sailing on a boat back to New York. So that's how it sometimes feels. But I think it's the, you know, having the work to do and to go to it and to be just humble before it and to, and to, and to be aware that, you know, not a particularly religious person or, or, or sort of woo-woo spiritualist person. I think spirituality has a role in everything we do and how we live. You, you know, you read over your work sometimes and, and, and while a lot of it may fall flat, there's some pieces where, wow, that's so good I couldn't have written it. You'll find that sometimes. Mm. And you have to ask yourself, well, who got out my computer? Who could possibly have typed this if not me? And you realize, well, I guess it was me. So <laughs> I'll keep that. That's okay. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, Dave, thank you for sharing so much and, uh, you know, being so thoughtful with your answers. So it's been great. Well, to thank you. Thank you. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.